All right, here's what we're going to do right now. Um, we are going to transition now. We're going to talk about the book of Revelation. I'm going to share with you guys real fast where we're going with this. We started a new series last week going through the book of Revelation. We'll be in the book of Revelation for six to nine months, somewhere around there. Take us for a while. But I think there's a lot of content in there that will be a great blessing to all of us. We talked a little bit about last week how the book of Revelation can be a very controversial book based upon, one, how you view it, two, your maturity level. If you like to argue, you're immature, uh, you'll probably find the book of Revelation very exciting. You like to force your opinions on other people's throat. Um, what we've been trying to do is saying we want to be a church that loves the book of Revelation because it's in the Bible. But we want to be able to view it through the proper lens I think it's meant to be viewed. Meaning that the book of Revelation is a book that's meant to be viewed through a lens that is Jesus is central to the entire theme. It's a very, there's a big theological word for you, Christocentric book. It's about Jesus. We know that because the very first few words in the book of Revelation say, John writing, a revelation of end times chaoticness. No, it's a revelation of Jesus. You like that word, chaoticness? All right, it's a freebie. It is a book about Jesus, and we want to view the book through that lens, that everything that's going to happen through the whole book is meant to bring about revelation of Jesus. So that will be uh, the angle which we'll be taking a look at throughout this whole book. Hopefully, we can all agree on Jesus. All of us can have secondary opinions. That's perfectly fine. We will be a church that will welcome secondary opinions. If, you, if we don't agree, we're, I, I do not believe for us to be a church, to love each other, we have to have uniformity about our beliefs about end times. I believe it's helpful, but I believe at the same time we don't need to have uniformity. But what we do need to have uniformity about is that the book of Revelation is themed after Jesus. Meaning Jesus is the center of the entire book. If we disagree there, we'll have really big problems. In fact, I would even say it's kind of hard for us to have a lot of unity based upon that. The book is about Jesus. So that's what we'll be taking a look at. So what I want to do right now is we kind of move on into this, is that it is a book written about Jesus to a group of people that are going through difficult times. I believe the dating of this book is probably towards the end of the 90s, mid-90s to late 90s. During this time was the beginning of a reign of a guy by the name of Domitian. Domitian sort of kind of, the, the, the early church was kind of moving into a scenario within Roman history where they had sort of what was called the, um, the Caesar cult or the worship of the Caesars or the emperor leader worship. And what was going on was they were expected to worship the Caesar and essentially call him king of kings and lord of lords. So a lot of the early Christians obviously had problems in their conscience with regard to this. Because in their minds, Jesus was king of kings and lord of lords, not Caesar. And so for a Christian who believed Jesus was king of kings and lord of lords, it was impossible for them to admit that Caesar was better than Jesus. They didn't want to be on that team. And so as a result of that, they found themselves in sort of involved with increasing forms of persecution and difficulty... And as a result of that, you can imagine that if you were in a culture, in a church, where, let's say, your pastor, let's say, I was taken away, and I was thrown in prison and tortured, and the rest of you were not allowed to meet on Sunday morning in Hawthorne Elementary School, because this is public, you know, 
owned property, so therefore religious groups cannot meet here, and you found yourselves having to meet in little houses, and you couldn't really bring your Bibles, or at least you had to keep them hidden, lest you be seen, or you'd be thrown in prison, and there you are, knowing that you don't have any leader, because your leader's in prison, he's been tortured, uh, a lot of you would begin to think, life's hard, how did this happen? Uh, are we losing the battle? Uh, has Jesus forsaken his promise to be with us always, even to the innermost parts of the world and even to the end of the age? Is Jesus still in control of all this? You can imagine, these were a lot of questions a lot of the early church people were probably asking. And as a result of that, John's writing to a group of believers in a culture that is increasingly uh, under intense pressure. So he wants them to be comforted by filling their minds with a big vision of a big God. So I want to suggest to you that before we even go any further, really the answer to most of life's problems is not another sermon about seven steps to better happiness or six easy keys to figuring out financial freedom. All those may have their place in their position, but what we would need more than anything, to be really frank with you, is we need a vision of a very big God. And most of us don't, a lot of times we don't necessarily see it as that because our perspective of God is very small. And because we have a very small perspective of God, we find ourselves needing alternative forms to bring satisfaction to our hearts. We're not happy. We're not satisfied. Our lives are not being fulfilled. Therefore, we need oftentimes messages that will cut to the chase and give us sort of felt needs. When in reality, I think the way John would view it is that the message that needs to be heard to a group of believers finding themselves in very increasing type of pressures economically, because you can imagine living in a culture where it's a very small community, everybody knows your name, most people worked in guilds, meaning if you milked cows for a living, you hung out with all the people that milked cows for a living. If you like sharpened swords for a living, you hung out in guilds where everybody sharpened swords. That's the way it worked. So if you as a Christian cannot submit to the emperor and worship him as king of kings and lord of lords, you would not only lose your position in society, but you'd also lose your job. People wouldn't buy from you anymore. You'd be marked. You would basically be uh, kind of an outcast. So you would suffer financially, you would suffer in every other type of way that you can imagine. So the message that John writes to these people going through difficult times is to paint for them a picture of a really big, sustainable, powerful, almighty, beautiful, glorious God. And that's what I hope we can hear today. That's what I hope we can see today that will actually bring a sustainable hope to us, bring encouragement to us, and help us to keep moving on in this life all the way to the point wherever God wants us to go. Does that make sense? So I'm going to read the passage this morning. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get to work here. So if you guys would not mind opening your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. We're going to pick it up this morning about verse 4. I'm going to read from verse 4 on down to about verse 8, and then we'll pray. John says this. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you, peace, from him who has, or who was, who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, to the ruler of all of the kings of the earth, 
to him who loves us, who freed us from our sins by his blood and made us kingdom of priests to his God, the Father. To him be glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him and even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on his account or on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. So Father, we ask you right now that you would allow us, help us, open our eyes to see you, Jesus. That we would see a picture of you, an image of you today that is great, that's sustainable, that would uphold us, that would bring hope and encouragement to our souls. God, we realize that in this room there's all sorts of different needs. People have hundreds and thousands of needs that are represented here. But only you, God, know how to be able to answer them and to bring life into every one of those people's hearts and circumstances and needs. And God, really, at the end of the day, what we need more than anything is we just need you. We need you to be our sustainer. We need you to be our strength and our comforter. So we commit this time in your hands. We pray, God, today would not be just about information, but we pray even more so that information would bring about revelation, and that revelation would bring about change in our lives. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning, what I want to take a look at as we kind of jump in is John's going to basically give... He starts by his greeting. And what we're going to look at basically in the first slide is he starts off by essentially saying, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, first of all, John's the author of this great book. We looked at that a little bit last week. And he basically writes his book to the seven churches that are in Asia. It's not China. That's, that's like Asia Minor, uh, modern-day Turkey, which is to where the place that he would have been writing it. Now, first of all, some people would wonder, you know, why seven churches? Weren't there more churches in Asia Minor? I mean, the gospel's been going around now for a good 40 years. This is, like I said, 80, 90. Uh, the gospel's been moving forward about 40 years. There's got to be more churches than seven in all of Turkey, right? Probably so. However, uh, most people believe that within the book of Revelation, you're going to see that number seven arise a lot. You're going to see seven trumpets, seven bulls, seven types of plagues, uh, seven spirits around the throne. Um, even within culture and history, we see like seven days out of the week. Seven dwarfs. I mean, you see, you know, the number seven is kind of a predominant figure. Just kidding about the seven dwarfs part. But the reality is, is that the number seven is significant. You see it arise a lot throughout the Bible. And the reason for that is, is because the number seven, uh, historically speaking and biblically speaking, typically carries the idea of completion or wholeness. And so a lot of scholars believe that what John's doing here is he's basically saying this letter is going out to the completed church in all of Asia Minor. So yes, it's going to these seven churches, but even broader than that, these churches would have then uh, either rewritten um, these letters or rescribed them and then resent them to other churches. And what they would have done is they would have gathered together a lot of times either in a living room or in some sort of a public meeting place or even a synagogue. Sometimes there were little rooms off to the sides of the synagogues. Christians by this time in 90 AD were meeting everywhere. Some off in, by the side of the road. Some actually in graveyards. Some were meeting in what were called catacombs. Places that were sort of underground in caves. Uh, Christians were meeting all over the place. There was not one unified type of location by which or where which they were meeting. They were just meeting wherever they could based upon the context and the types of persecution that they were facing 
in that particular time frame. So John's saying, I'm writing this letter um, based upon a vision that I saw about Jesus. I'm delivering this to the seven churches or the completed churches there that are in Asia Minor. This is grace to you and peace. Uh, the word grace is charis. And then basically the idea that he's communicating here is that God gives favor. God gives favor to those to whom he's writing. And he uses the word peace. It's interesting though, he does not use the typical word that's oftentimes used in Greek for peace, which is the word pax, P-A-X. Here may have the pax romana, this idea of Roman's peace or Rome's type of peace. It's not the type of peace that he's communicating. This type of peace that he's offering or is communicating is a peace that flows out of grace. Grace that comes from God. Now what you got to understand with regard to grace, uh, this is also a typical type of uh, salutation that Paul the Apostle uses. Peter used it. And the idea was that grace, which is a gift, or favor if you would, it comes from God. And the, the meaning behind it, or the concept behind it, that's, that essentially became kind of the theme of the early church, was that we have favor with God, not because of what we've done, not because of how we are, not because of the way we act, or not because of the family we grew up in, or the fact that we're Abraham's descendants, but we have favor with God merely, solely, completely on the basis of God alone. The point is this, we cannot leverage God's grace based upon how we act, based upon our good works, based upon our deeds. When mankind first sinned, Adam and Eve, the very first thing they, they, that they did following the fall was they sewed together for themselves fig leaves. And the fig leaves really was an attempt on their behalf to basically find favor with God once again or to cover up their shame in order that by representing themselves before God, yeah, maybe God might not notice. But the very first thing God says to them is says, what happened? You guys are naked. Uh, and what happens is they basically begin to say, Oh, we sewed together fig leaves. And God's whole point is that it's insignificant. It doesn't work. It's not functioning. It's not working. So the reality is this, is that religion is really man's attempt to try to make himself right with God. That's what religion does. Religion really is nothing more, nothing less than what we typically all do in that we sew together fig leaves. Some fig leaves might be religion. Right? We read our Bible a lot. We pray a lot. We attempt by going to church a lot, by doing all sorts of religious type of activity. Somehow God will recognize us and accept us. Okay? Um, that's, that's a fig leaf. Some of us think, you know, by meditation or other forms of religious type of activities um, that somehow we will gain our respect or acceptance by God. These are all various forms of religion. But what we have to understand is that at the end of the day, is that God does not accept human people, human beings, human behavior on the basis of what we do. God accepts us on the basis of his son. It's a gift. It's a gift. You can't earn a gift. You just accept a gift. And that's what basically John's wanting for us to understand. That God has given us, he's shown to us grace, favor. We have merit simply on the basis of Jesus alone. That's really good news. Because a lot of us have tried to get God to accept us, to do something to let God like us. But what you have to realize is that if you trust in Jesus, if you love Jesus, God has accepted you. 
because God has accepted his son. So that means by trusting Jesus, loving Jesus, God sees you sort of clothed, the way Paul would put it, in Jesus. You are clothed inside Jesus. So when God looks at you, he sees a son whom loves immensely. God loves his son a lot. And as a result of that, John's able to say, grace to you, grace to you, and peace. This peace flows out of grace. The peace that we have with God, the peace that we have from God, flows naturally and characteristically out of the favor that we have with God. I I hope some of you guys hear that today. Because some of us, perhaps, are really still trying hard to get God to like us. What you need to hear today is that if you trust in Jesus, God already likes you because he likes his son. In fact, he doesn't just like you, he loves you. He actually loves you. That's good news. That's really good news. In fact, it's gospel, all right? That's what we're going to look at. Now, as we kind of move on from that, um, he's going to now give to the people to whom he's writing, consequently, which is going to be us, we get the letter, he's going to talk to us a little bit about a description of Jesus, the Son of God. He's going to do this in four particular parts. Now, again, John doesn't waste any time in really cutting to the chase, getting straight to business. Again, John starts out the letter by saying, this is a revelation of Jesus. And you might be like, well, when's John going to start giving us a revelation of Jesus? Well, John does this immediately, all right? And that's what John does. He immediately jumps into actually unfolding or unpackaging for us some aspects about Jesus. And the way he does this is not only by telling us about his name or telling us Jesus, but he also begins to give us some descriptions of what Jesus is like. First century, not only the name, but also the description of what people did and how they were was very significant. Names actually meant something. This is why Jesus' name wasn't Bob. I mean, there's nothing wrong with Bob. But, but Jesus actually means something, all right? Or Robert, all right? Be, all right? The point is, is that the name Jesus literally comes from two words, Yeshua or Jehovah is salvation. God is salvation. So Jesus sort of bears that name and he reflects his mission. So the name of Jesus is very significant because it, it literally reveals to the world who Jesus is, what he's like. But because Jesus is so beautiful in his glory and, and, and manifold in his ways, I mean, you, not just one word can describe Jesus, is what I'm trying to say. All right? There are many different descriptions that are used to give, uh, give uh, meaning to Jesus, to describe him, because he's a very big God, and because our language falls short. So you're like, well, which is it? Is he the way, the truth, and life, or is he, you know, the faithful witness? Yes. He's all the above. He's all the above, because language fails And because Jesus is so great and so beautiful, and so manifold in his beauty, it takes a lot of words to describe him. This is why he actually finishes this whole little section by saying, here's one more title. He's like, I am the Alpha and the Omega, which is another way of basically saying the first letter of the alphabet, Alpha, Greek alphabet, that is, and the last letter of the alphabet, the Omega. And every subsequent letter in between those two that you can form words, concepts, phrases, words, paragraphs, everything. He's saying, that can describe anything. That's me. 
everything in between. It's all. So that's the picture that he's trying to make. So again, John's trying to say, Jesus is a very big God. A very, very big God. The first way in which he describes him is this. Who was, who is, and who is to come. Now most scholars believe that what he's doing is he's sort of hearkening back to kind of an Old Testament concept that was revealed of God in Exodus chapter 3. If you guys want to turn there, you can. If not, you can look at it on the screen. And it says basically of the story in which Moses was called by God to be a deliverer. So Moses is basically commissioned by God. Moses, I want you to set the people of Israel free from uh, captivity from the Egyptians. Well, Moses basically realizes that he's living in a very polytheistic type of a culture and society. And that the way that the uh, Egyptians would work is they had all sorts of gods. And their gods had names. So for the sun god, Ra, that was the sun god. They had names for the gods of the Nile. They had names for the gods of like little scarabs, those little dung beetles. They had names for everything you can imagine under the sun. So Moses basically says to God, he says, God, you know, when I go to Pharaoh, he's going to ask me what the name of my God is. I've got to have a name. I mean, name's a title. Name's a handle. Name's a brand, in other words. Kind of the idea. So God says, you want a brand? You want a title? You want a name? I'll give you a title. I'll give you a brand. I'll give you a name. Just tell them, I am, that I am, sent you. That's a big word. Some of us might be like, I am? It's a name? What does that mean? Some scholars have defined it or described it as like the all-becoming one. Or the God that was is the same God that is. The God that will become. Some, one Hebrew scholar described it this way. He described it as, I am now what I always was and will always be. Think about that. That's God's name. God's title, if you would. So God, in this particular passage, this name that was actually exclusively given to Jehovah God, Remember in the Old Testament, the, the Jews were, were monotheistic. In other words, they did not think of God in Trinitarian terms. Now, when Jesus comes, there was a beginning of a shift in their mind to think of God in multifaceted terms. Trinitarian, the way we would look at it. So Jesus takes upon himself the title that was exclusive of Jehovah God. So in actually the Greek that's used here, the way the Greek is actually formed or used here, is kind of a unique usage, but it harkens back to this Old Testament passage that's exclusively given or devoted to Jehovah God. Jesus uses for himself here. So here's what I want you to hear, okay? So I can tell some of you are like, where is he going with all this? I'll tell you. You got a bunch of people that are wondering, where's God? Has he changed his mind? Is he still with us? We're suffering here. I mean, Domitian is causing havoc. You know, our pastor's in prison. My great uncle's suffering. My mom and my dad, because they refuse to worship Caesar, have been tortured. God, where are you? Have you forgotten? Have you forsaken? Are you still with us? Are you still going to keep going with us? And the very first title that John gives to his hearers is, listen, Jesus, who was is and will always be. He will never change. He will never change. That sometimes, sometimes, and this would immediately take their minds back to the Exodus. Because during the time of the Exodus, a lot of them were wondering, God, where are you? God, have you left us? Have you forsaken us? And God in his mercy, God in his grace, in his favor, God actually answers. And the way that God answers is not by voice from, hen, uh, voice from heaven or from thunder, but the way that God answers is by way of a deliverer. Moses. 
in the same type of literary format that was used in the Old Testament Exodus, John employs to basically say to his hearers that are going through tough times, saying, listen, God has not forsaken you. God speaks. God has provided a deliverer. That God who was, is, and will always be. And that God who started this whole thing 40 some odd years ago through the ministry of Jesus, even though he died, has resurrected. And he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. He's not forsaken you. That Jesus is, was, and will always be. That's a great word of truth and encouragement to those of us that might be wondering, God, where are you? So John starts with that title, and he moves on to sort of the second title, and he basically describes Jesus as the faithful witness. Faithful witness. The actual two Greek words that are used there are pistos martos. Uh, the word pistos, we actually get the English word uh, faith from it. Most of the time that that word is used in the New Testament also is translated faith or faithful. Martus, we get the English word martyr from. So Jesus, uh, according to this revelation, is a faithful witness or faithful martyr. All right? Um, now, the word martyr came to be identified. I mean, when we think of martyr today, we don't think of somebody who's like a witness who bears testimony of something. We think of somebody who dies. But if you trace that concept of thinking back, the reason why somebody dies is because they're faithful to their belief, right? They die because they're unwilling to violate their conscience or change their belief because they're absolutely convinced of what they believe. So those people that typically hold to their belief all the way to the point of death, which we get the idea of martyr, they are a martyr, they die for what they believe in, that's where we get the idea. That's the connection between the two. But Jesus is faithful, meaning he doesn't lie. Jesus doesn't come and be like, hey, God is like this. He's love. You're like, really? He's like, no, I'm just kidding. And Jesus is like, no, I'm serious. He really is love. I mean, I'm serious. God really has sent me to you so that you can have life. That he's actually faithful. Um, He's a witness, meaning he actually bears testimony of what God is like, or of what things are really like. Um, Jesus one day approached, and John gives the scripture here, he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus makes this statement, and the point that I think he's trying to convey is this, is that if you're wondering what the Father's like, just look to me. Look to me. You guys, this truth, if, if there's anything I, I would wish as a pastor who loves you guys would get today is this. Because some of you have false ideas about the Father God. Some of you do. And I honestly think some of it's because you've had parents that have misled you. Maybe your parents have been more concerned about how you look in your life, in your morality, what you do, than how you get God. Maybe it's because you've had a pastor that has, you know, focused on one particular aspect of religion or biblical Christianity or whatever, and has somehow neglected other aspects of it. But what I want you to get is this, is that if you are confused about what the Father's like, just go read about Jesus. I'm really honest with you. Take your Bibles, look in the Gospels, study the life of Jesus, ask yourself, how did Jesus treat Harlots, how did Jesus treat women that were 
viewed in that culture as basically being the town slut. How did Jesus deal with those people? He loved them. He didn't just sort of abandon them and bail on them. He didn't just sort of pick them up as a spectacle and laugh at them and say, listen, don't live like that. She's horrible. And unfortunately, somehow we get this picture in our mind. That's how God is like. But reality, Jesus, if you study the life of Jesus, you realize that Jesus actually displays very faithfully as a witness what the Father's like. Very faithfully. So I encourage you, if there's confusion in your mind, what God's like, just go to the scriptures, look at Jesus, look at the gospel accounts. I think what you'll find is a very different picture than oftentimes what is given to you. Look, the bottom line is this. I want personally, I personally want to faithfully represent God. I realize I don't all the time. I don't do it in front of my kids. I point my kids back to Jesus. I'm like, look, your daddy loves you. Your daddy just wants to have a relationship with you guys. I have a great relationship with my kids. I love my daughters. I love my family. I love hanging out with my family. But I don't faithfully represent what God is like all the time. So I try to just direct my kids back. I'm like, look, daddy's, daddy's a bonehead sometimes. Daddy loses his temper sometimes. Daddy says things sometimes I shouldn't. I'm sorry about that. And you just, you got to understand, daddy's in process. I'm, I'm a mirror, but sometimes I'm broken. So sometimes the picture that you get from God is refracted. And I, you know, it's not reflected. It's kind of broken. It's shattered. But daddy's hopefully getting better. We need to understand that, all right? So go back to Jesus. Go back to the Gospels. And I think what you'll find, like what John says, Jesus is a faithful witness of what God is like. The third thing that he points out, he says that he's the firstborn from the dead. I love this picture that he gives right here. Uh, again, verse uh, 4, he says, grace to you, and he jumps on down. He says, uh, um, to, uh, where am I at here? I have no idea where I'm at. Who is before his throne, Jesus Christ, faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. And what he wants us to see here with regard to this particular title, that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, I think it's pretty clear that he wants us to understand that Jesus is the beginning of something brand new. The word firstborn in that culture was very significant. Um, in that culture, which was very patriarchal, meaning men were it, men, men were the dominant force in the culture and the society, women did not really have a place in that culture and society. It's unfortunate, and at the same time, I would even argue that it was always God's intent to raise or to elevate women to status of recognition, um, of being one with both male, but because the culture dominated, males were the significant force and factor within the culture, and so therefore, if you had a child in that culture and the firstborn was a woman, you'd be bummed. You'd be bummed. That's just the way it worked. And at the same time, if you had a son, you're absolutely stoked. You would celebrate, you'd throw a party, you'd invite all your friends on the block, they'd come over, you'd have a big barbecue, it was wonderful. Let me just say this, God was always, I think, personally, trying to raise the value and worth of women. I'll give you one simple, quick example. The book of Ruth is a story, I believe, of the gospel, beautifully told. Guess through whose eyes? A female. It's God's way of saying, Here's to you men, right? Male, chauvinist, culture, think you're all great. I'll share the gospel with you through the eyes of a female. It's great. Women, 
Two cheers. All right, the point that I'm making is this. In that culture, the idea of a firstborn son was very significant. A son would basically be the heir of everything a father had, of all of his wealth, all of his land, his business, his trade, and actually the caretaker of his family. So all of the rights and all of the responsibilities would then be given to the firstborn son after the father passed away. Very important. So when they heard the word firstborn, they already knew it was weighted. It was filled with definition and knowledge. When we read the word firstborn, we don't, really, we don't read it with the same type of weightiness. But for them, they hear this phrase, firstborn from the dead. And it's filled with all sorts of colorful imagery about what Jesus is like. So, firstborn. And he goes on and saying, from the dead. Now, here's the question I have for you. Was Jesus the very first person to die and rise again from the dead? No, right? Lazarus died, rose again from the dead. Old Testament, we see the story of like Elijah, he raises a little boy from the dead. Jesus raised a handful of people from the dead. So these weren't the first people actually raised from the dead. But with like Lazarus, for example, he rose again from the dead. So I wouldn't call what happened to Lazarus a resurrection. I would call it a resuscitation, right? I mean, Lazarus dies. He's with, G- he's with Jesus. Jesus on earth. He's with God for like three days, four days in heaven with God in some sort of temporary bodiless type state. He's with God. He's celebrating. He's just loving God. And all of a sudden, he finds himself back in this old rickety body that's like covered in grave claws. And he's like, what's up? Jesus is like, your sisters wanted you back. It's like, oh! You know, and what's happening is he's like, listen, I brought you back for a reason, all right, to give glory to me. He's like, all right, that's cool. But the reality is, is that Lazarus ends up dying again. All right, so he goes back. He goes back home. But the point that I want to make is this. Everybody that's been resurrected from the dead in the past already died. Jesus is the first type of individual to die Rise again from the dead, never to die again. So the word that's actually used in the Greek is the Greek word protocon. We get the word, English word prototype from. Meaning Jesus is sort of this example of everything that will take place someday. Just for your information, this has not happened yet. Alright? In sort of a short measure it has, this is why Paul the Apostle uses words like this, an imagery like this, when describing what happened to us in Christ. Paul will say, in Christ Jesus, you are new creations. Meaning, something's happened here. Our heart, which was dead, our heart, which did not want to have anything to do with God, has been made alive. Now, we actually want to know God. Now, we actually value things like praying. Now, we read the Bible and it actually comes to life to us. Why? The only description that Paul would give, or the main description Paul would give, is that our hearts have been made alive. Something of resurrection life has started to happen inside of us. Does that make sense? But the reality is, is one day our body will die. All right? Our body will one day die. Think about this. In a hundred years, hundred years from today, every single one of us will be gone. All right, you know, crickets are cricking right now. It's like, you know, we're all going to be gone. All of us will die. Our bodies will stop functioning. And it is what it is. But the reality that I think John's trying to remind these people that are undergoing intense persecution, and they're wondering, like, you know, our pastor just got killed. What's going to happen with him? And what he's basically trying to say is, listen, 
Don't forget, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Jesus is alive. And what Jesus is currently is what we will be one day. So Jesus, check this out. I was going through this with my daughter last night. We were talking about this last night at the dinner table. When Jesus rose again from the dead, the, I love the fact that one of the very first things he does is he goes and he hangs out with the disciples and he rummages through the refrigerator. I absolutely love that. He's like, you guys got any fish? Like, yeah, we got some. Like, and he takes the fish and he goes down and he has a barbecue. I love that. Like, Jesus is into barbecuing in the resurrected life. I mean, that's amazing to think that one day, when we die, and one day we are resurrected, we will be resurrected into a life that will involve a physical body. Okay, so let me, let me try to fill in some blanks here. Because people who die right now, where are they at currently? Right now, they are in some sort of bodiless state. They don't have a physical body yet. Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with God. You are with God. That's far better than this world. What's it like? I have no clue. All right? It's probably pretty sweet. Um, other than that, we don't, we're not really given that much information. But one day, one day in the future, Jesus will come back to this planet and he will make this planet new. Everybody will die. Every human being will die. Those that love Jesus will be given what's called a resurrected body. They will be resurrected from the dead, right? Yes, people that were cremated. And they will be given a brand new body. A body that, the Bible says, is actually pleasing to God. A body that is tangible. That, a body that feels. A body that eats. A body that embraces and touches and that loves to hang out with people. Heaven, if you would, is not some place where we go way out there living in some disembodied spirit. That's called Gnosticism. The final state is that we will be given a resurrected body just like Jesus. That's a great hope. That's a great hope. That means, the way C.S. Lewis would put it, all the great benefits that we have on this planet, food, poetry, song, art, relationships, will be part of the new earth, new heavens, minus all of the pain, tears, suffering, hardship, ego, sin. You understand? And Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. He's the one that gives us a glimpse into what it will be like one day. That's really good news. Really good news. All right? So he's going to move on to the final example that he's going to give about Jesus. And he says this, that he's also the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, the point that I think he wants for us to understand about this um, is that Jesus literally has power and authority over all. He is the ruler over all the kings of the earth. The word archon that's actually used there for ruler has a very broad uh, range of use in the Greek. Um, it can mean the high priest, like if the, whoever the highest guy in order over the priesthood, he's the archon. The guy who's like, the, say, the highest in the town or the official, the town official, he's the archon of that town. The archon of all of Rome or the Caesar, He's the head leader. So it's the idea of head ownership, leadership over whatever it is, civil, religious, whatever. So here's the question that may have been going on in the minds of the first century believers of, you know, this emperor worship and the reality of 
persecution and hardship that might face them someday in the future. And a lot of speculation as to, you know, where will we be? Where will our loved ones be? Is there anybody in control over these guys? And here John basically describes about Jesus. He says, Jesus is the archon over all archons. He's the king over all kings. Jesus is the leader, the ruler over all leaders and rulers, whether religious, civil, governmental, whatever the case may be. Jesus has final power, final authority over all. So listen to it again. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who was, who is, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits. I didn't look at the seven spirits passage there. I'll just give you a couple of verses for you to look up. Chapter 4, verse 5, look that one up. Chapter 5, verse 6, look that one up as well. I'm just going to simply say this. There's at least four ways to look at that. I'm not going to go into all of them. You can look up those two verses, and that might give you a little bit of information about them. But he's going to go on, he's going to say, who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over all the kings of the earth. And then he finishes with this little section. It's almost as if John is just blown away by the descriptions that he receives of Jesus, and that he hope that he faithfully delivers of Jesus. And here's what he does. He says, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and the Father, and to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He finishes this little section with sort of what's called a doxology. It's a moment of praise. And I love the fact that he finishes with that little section of just amen. The word amen literally means like so be it. I know that most of us here in Calvary Slow, we're all just like mellow, we're calm, we sit on our hands, we don't even think about using our voices to say amen periodically, but my encouragement to you, because I love you, a little bit of advice, learn to say the word amen, I have a feeling you'll be using a lot in heaven, all right? The point of the matter is, is that Paul, he's reading this, or Paul and John, all the other New Testament scholars and writers, they're reading this stuff, they're listening to it, they're conveying it, and they're absolutely floored by this. John is at least in his 90s. All right, think about this. He's been walking with Jesus for well over 40 years. He's a grandpa. He's got a long white beard. He can barely walk. Uh, Tradition tells us when John would walk into a room, he couldn't even walk. He had to be helped in, and he'd kind of waddle a little bit, and he'd sit down and barely sit down, and he could just barely speak. And the very last words he would oftentimes share with the disciples to whom he would speak to would say now my my beloved brethren my little ones love one another that's about all John could say he was a grandpa all right but I love this because as John's writing this in exile and in prison he just breaks out like a Pentecostal and he's just like amen I love this I love this he's just stoked on what God has done for him because here's what he says that this great God, who's the archon over all authorities, who's the prototype of what's to come, who's the faithful witness, very carefully, clearly displays in every facet and way God, who is, who was, who is to come. He says, this God, as great and as mighty and as powerful as he is, love me. Think about that. Thank you. If you heard this, that he's the archon of all archons, you want to make sure this guy's your friend. All right? If he's your enemy, 
your bump, all right? You want to make sure that he's your friend. And that's the point that he's making is that this Jesus, who's a faithful witness, who's the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, in every single way, he loved us and he washed us from our sin. I want you to think about that. That's what Jesus did for you. That's what heaven will be like. Most of the arguments, most of the issues that we find ourselves dealing with today are going to pass away one day. And what we will be ultimately consumed with is we will see this great king, this almighty God, this creator of all things that are absolutely beyond our comprehension, loves us. It's amazing. And he just says he washed us from our sins. Freed us from our sins. The word that's used in the, in, the, in the Greek literally means to be loosed from. Meaning we were bound by sin. We couldn't get out of sin. We were like an addict. That's the point. We were addicted to it. We couldn't get, we were so addicted to it, it actually became to a point in our lives where we just could not anymore walk away from it. We weren't free to walk away from it. We had to be delivered. It's the picture going back into the Old Testament with the people of Israel that were in Egypt. They could not walk away from Egypt. They couldn't walk away from Pharaoh. They couldn't walk in and be like, we stamped our time card. Can we go home now? No. Make more bricks. You know, they, they were bound. There's no way for them to leave except by a deliverer. And that's what John says. We were bound by our sin. But God, who's the archon of all things, He's the prototype of that which is to come. That God loved us and freed us from the bondage of sin that destroyed us. And then he finishes with that little section. And he says, and he made us a kingdom of priests to our God. I love this picture. Because this is what he's saying. The Old Testament picture of a priest was this elite group of people. Not everybody could be priests. Only one tribe of the people of Israel called the Levites. They were allowed to be the priests. And it you know, involved a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of effort, and a lot of standards within their life. And here's what he says. Well, here's what God has done. He's taken all of us who were once filthy, once sinners, once offenders to God, and he's washed us and cleansed us. And not only that, but God has actually brought us to become his priest. We now form the new priesthood of God. Now, here's what his point is, is that a priest would represent God. He would mediate between God and man. He would demonstrate to human beings what God was like, and he would represent human beings to God. That was what the priest would do. His job was basically to bring God to the people. And now here's what he's saying, is that those of us that have been bought by Christ's blood, that have been washed and cleansed and pride, free from our sin, that we have been made a kingdom of priests. Therefore, what that means today, you and I, we get this great privilege to communicate, to live out, to demonstrate, to show forth God's greatness to this world. See, the reality is some of us, we can look at our lives and we're like, you know what, I'm just a mom. I, all I do is change diapers for a living. Or I just work a job and it's just full of tedium and it's just all sorts of stress and struggles and, you know, I got to pay my bills and I'm just a student. What I want to say is exactly what I think John's trying to communicate is that that is not true you are a priest you are a mediator you are somebody that gets to communicate god to people around you you are a priest to your son as he grows up you get the privilege of sharing jesus to your child 
You get the privilege of communicating Jesus to your classmates. You get the honor and the privilege of being able to communicate Jesus to other people that are on the job with you. We are a kingdom of priests. And I think one of the main reasons why we don't do that is because we don't see ourselves as that. But the reality is, is that every one of you guys are in ministry. Every one of you. We are all called to be ministers, to live forth, to communicate, to share about Jesus Christ. Because we have to? No, because we get to. This is a great God we're talking about. It's not a God that's just like frustrating. We're like, ah, got to serve God again. No, God is amazing. And we get the joy of communicating him to the world around us. I honestly believe that if we as a broader church actually felt this and lived this, I think this would change the way that we view coming to gatherings like this. If we actually saw ourselves as a kingdom of priests called to minister and to serve others on God's behalf, it would change the way that we view the people sitting next to us. To be really honest with you, I mean, we have a very, very unique church. Most of the students are gone. Hundreds of students are gone today from all of our services, all right? But the reality is, is this. We have a very unique church where there's a lot of young people as well as middle-aged type people. But here's what happens oftentimes. Older people might come and they're just like, ah, there's all these young people. I'm a little bit freaked out by this. And I say the same thing all the time. I'm like, you know, the reality is this is a blessing. There's not a lot of churches that have the blessing of having all sorts of young people that will be the next generation of our culture to change it. But if we view ourselves as a kingdom of priests, rather as an old person viewing younger people as a nuisance, we would actually view them as people whom we get to love and serve. People whom we can actually call into our house, hang out with, have lunch with, have dinner with, love on, shape, form, pour into, disciple. I get questions all the time by younger people, and they're asking the same question all the time. Are there any older people in this church? Because I'd love to hang out with some of them. I got old people, and they're like, why are there so many young people in this church? You guys, we are a kingdom of priests. I, I hope we see that. I mean, I love you guys. I love our church. I love pastoring in this place. I love what's going on here. I love the fact that for whatever reason, hundreds of students love coming here. I love that. I hope you guys love it too. I hope you love the fact that God has blessed us with an opportunity to be a kingdom of priests. Not one day in the future, but today, starting in this fellowship. Viewing one another as an opportunity to love and serve and mediate as the Lord would lead to bring them to Jesus, to demonstrate the grace of God to them. All right? I'm done with that rant. Last one is this. He finishes with this in verse 7. Uh, jump back. He says, to him be glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. Again, amen. But his point is this, to God, to Jesus, be glory, dominion forever. His point is this. The idea of dominion and glory is this idea of weightiness. That Jesus, the Old Testament word for glory is kabod. It's this idea of like thickness, weightiness, heaviness. That God is actually full of substance. Do you know that the majority of stuff that we live for in this life, the majority of stuff we talk about in this life, 
is just weightless. All right, if you don't believe me, just today, don't spend a lot of time on this, but today, just go look at the Facebook profile feed. All right, you'll see people like, like just weightless stuff. All right, my point is that, not to poke fun of any of that, but to just simply say this, the majority of stuff that we find ourselves living for, putting our energy towards is just weightless, but God is full of weight. And here's what John says, is that if somehow the believers to whom he's writing could just see the weightiness of God, the value, the greatness, the power of this God, it would change the way they live, change the way they think, change the way that they hope, change perhaps their disparity into encouragement, change their cowardice to real boldness, change their fears into just affections of great love. That's why I think he's going with this. And he finishes with these last few verses in verse 7 and 8. He says, Behold, he's coming in the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierce him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. He finishes with this promise by basically saying, this Jesus will come again. He has not forsaken you. He will come again. Just as he's promised, he will come again. And he quotes from a passage from the Old Testament out of Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And he says, basically, that when he comes, every eye will see him. Um, They will look upon him whom they have pierced. Do you know that one day Jesus will come? Do you know that every eye that sees him will actually see something about Jesus that's characteristic about him? Is that Jesus, you will actually see visibly his scars, his wounds, the sword that pierced his side, all of that will be visible. And throughout all eternity, I believe it's intended that way, or it's designed that way, so that it would be a reminder to us of the depth of God's love and the lengths to which God has gone to redeem fallen mankind. People that have basically more or less just shunned God, that have offended God, that have basically pushed God away, that have stiff-armed God. And God in great love and great passion has sought after, relentlessly pursuing us all the way to the point of the cross. And it's this God that John wants to remind his hearers who loved you, he died for you, he has washed you, he's cleansed you, and this Jesus will one day return and every eye will, will be reminded of that day where he died on the cross. Some will wail and weep out of deep affection and love because Jesus died for them. And they know it. They feel the pain. They feel the weightiness of that. It was because of our sin, of what we have done, something that we have brought as an offense to God, that Jesus died for us. And it will bring forth great tears of affection and love. But there will be others that will wail because they will see that Jesus is indeed who he claimed he always was, the King of Kings, the Archon, the Lord of Lords, the firstborn of the dead. And they will wail because they realize chances are over. Guys, the reality is this. You got issues that you're going through in your life? Join the club. In this world we will have tribulation. It's hard. It's tough. We live in a world that's broken. We hang out with people that are broken. People will step on our toes. 
People will sin against us. We will be defiled. And we will oftentimes be the ones who defile other people. But Jesus in grace comes into our life, into our world, and seeks to save those that are broken. And he starts this process of redemption through the cross, saving us, and will one day return to make all of the wrongs right. So those of us today that are sitting around hoping, will it ever happen? Will it ever come? Has God forgotten? The message that John wants to convey is that no, God has not forgotten. He is the first, the last, and will always be. He is the one that always faithfully represents God, meaning God never breaks promises. That this God is so consistent that he's coming again. He's coming again, and that's a great hope. So we're going to respond right now. We're going to worship the Lord. We're going to sing to him. We're going to have an opportunity to give our tithes and our offerings to God. If you're one of our guests, please don't feel any obligation to give. If you love this church, if you call this your church, this is an opportunity for us to give joyfully to Jesus because God is a great giver to us of his son and of his grace. We give because God gives. It's an opportunity for us to sing to God. It's an opportunity for us to respond to the word of God. If you're here and you're not a Christian, my encouragement to you is the best way for you to respond is to bring to God by confessing to God your sin. Saying, God, I've sinned against you. I've offended you. And I receive the grace, the gift that you've given me through your son. If you're a believer, I hope that your affections were raised. I hope you see Jesus as big today. And not small, but a great God that has power and authority over everything in your life and actually gives us a really big snapshot of what life will be like one day with him in the new heavens, in a new earth, world without end, with no sin. Amen. That's an amen. So I'm going to pray. We'll worship. We'll sing. We'll give. Some of us will repent. And hopefully in this room, our praises will rise with enthusiasm. All right? Let's do it. Jesus we thank you for the cross. We thank you for what you've done for us. We give to you now our hearts, our lives, our affections, and our attention. For some of us here, God, we just also give to you our sin. And we say thank you, Jesus, for cleansing us and washing us and freeing us from the bondage of our sin. We look forward to the fact that, Jesus, one day you will return.